Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when, he's, when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Do you not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. You do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, um, we do come before your throne in the name of Jesus, the one who is life, the only one in whom life is made available to us and imparted to us. Father, we know that there's life in Your Word. And we look to You asking that You make Your Word effective now. Asking that You grant power by Your Holy Spirit to enable each of us to hear, to really hear, perceive what You are saying in these verses. Enable me to deliver the message that you would have delivered, I pray. And enable all of us to receive your truth. So that as John has said here, so that we might have life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We're basically going to take this section in two parts. I asked Zach to go ahead and read through verse 15 primarily this morning. We're going to look at um, 223 through 312, um, considering this morning the necessity of the new birth and the nature of the new birth. And I want to come back tonight, Lord willing, and talk about the, uh, the power 
of it that is what it's based upon, the divine enablement that brings about the new birth. Um, I want to relate a story real quick, and, and uh, some of you have heard me mention these things before, but in light of the, the song that I was just singing and, and just thinking a little bit about why that song resonates, but, but also I think this is good application for what we're going to talk about here. Um, now, some of you know, before, uh, before uh, my life in the Lord, before the Lord saved me, um, what I was doing uh, for a living uh, was uh, singing in clubs, you know, in this, around this area. And uh, I remember, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of a, little bit of a testimony here about um, the Lord's dealing with me and, and bringing me to the, uh, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and as you've also heard me say many, many times, it wasn't that I didn't know about Christ prior to this time. I did. I was raised up in church, going to Sunday school, you know, did vacation Bible schools, all that kind of thing, but um, was, was still without Christ. That is, I did not know Him as Lord and Savior. So, just a little bit of personal testimony here in terms of application. I'll probably refer back to this a little bit. Um, I remember that there, there are a few incidents that stand out in my mind um, in particular. And have uh, you know, and I realize even as I relate them, they won't have the same significance to you that they do to me. But but they have great significance in in uh, in my my own experience. Um, one in particular was we were working at a at a club, a bar. We you know we call them honky tonks, you know, um, up in the Vivian area. And I remember one night everything was going pretty much. The way we always desired for it to go, um, it was it was a packed house. Um, we, I don't, I don't, when these thoughts that I'm about to share with you were going through my mind, I don't remember what song I was singing, but um, I do remember, and I can still visualize it. I do remember looking across the dance floor, and it was packed. It was packed. I'm telling you, in terms of what we. Um, what we looked for, you know, what we wanted to happen when we would go somewhere and play, everything was happening just right. But here, here's what I want to relate. I, I remember looking across that room and, you know, with, with everything just like we always desired it to be, basically. Everybody's having a good time. Everybody's dancing, you know. And I remember looking across that room and thinking, and, and it's hard to even know how to, how to, how to relate this, but because it's not so much that sentences were going through my head. It, it was just a realization. I, I remember looking across that room and realizing this is all so empty. It's empty. And I'm watching people laughing, you know, apparently having the time of their life or whatever from all outward appearance. And I'm seeing... You know, myself, I'm seeing the other people, and I'm seeing all of the, the atmosphere and thinking, it's all empty. It's empty. You know, their, ha- their happiness, my, it, it's all empty. The whole atmosphere, it's all, it's all empty. Um, another, the, the night that I always refer to um, as the night of surrender, um, when uh, the Lord pinned me down, that's the way I like to think of it, you know, I've... One, uh, one of the uh, highlights in my... This, this wasn't the same night, by the way, but one of the highlights in my uh, career back then was um, 
was playing, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you say playing with or alongside or fronting for or whatever, um, Ginger the Wrestling Bear. And uh, Ginger, they claim, now I don't know, she was big, they claim she weighed 735 pounds. Of course, you know how those people stretch the truth sometimes. <laughs> but she was big and she was strong. Ginger the Wrestling Bear. And well, that was down in Mansfield. And, and I remember these, these um, they had these regulations, you know, because of the Humane Society and everything. They, she was only allowed to wrestle so many times per night. I think, I think it was five. And so what they would have to do is, is do drawings to, you know, because all these guys, not all of them, because I, I wasn't getting in line, but, but a, a lot of these guys that would come out there, you know, they wanted to show that they could wrestle the bear, right? So, so you would have had way too many, so they had to do it by drawing, and they would pick five names. And I mean some big old boys. They picked some good ones, some big old boys. But she just had no problem. Now, a side note, one of the things that fascinated me about it, you know, just to, to show the intelligence of the bear, she would play as hard as they did. All right, there's, I saw, you see one or two guys that get out there and they couldn't do a whole lot, and she was relatively gentle with them. But when the, when the trainer gave her the cue to pin them down, she put them down, and there wasn't no getting up, you know. <laughs> and then I saw bigger guys who, who thought they were really going to show her, you know. And I remember one guy just come running across the dance floor and, you know, his whole body, the whole weight of his body hitting her, and it was like hitting a brick wall. <laughs> he just stopped, you know. And she, she reached down, took his legs right out from under him, wham, he went down on his back. And she, she's thinking, you know, you can just see it, you know. She's thinking, you want to play hard, huh? So, so, but she'd get on and pin him down. It's over. It's over. And she, and she knew to pin both shoulders to the ground. She put her paws on And so, I, so you know, that... It may sound like a funny way to relate it, but that's the way I think of it. The Lord pinned, there, there, there came a point in time where the Lord just said, this is it. It's kind of like with Paul, you know, in, in Paul's um, testimony in the book of Acts where the Lord says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, isn't it? You know, you're, you're not going anywhere. You, you, and you're not, you think you're autonomous. You think you're self-sufficient. You're not. So the Lord just pinned you down. Well, the night the Lord pinned me down, um, I remember, and I'll, I'll skip all the details here, but I, I remember laying, I was laying in a ditch on the side of Highway 71. That's a story in itself, but uh, it, it was a wreck. But I was laying in, in a ditch on the high to, side of Highway 71, and I remember, this is where it came to a head for me, I remember looking up, and I still remember the words. I, I remember looking up and saying, Lord... From here on out, I just want to do it your way. That's why I call it surrender. Now, a couple things. I, I don't want to um, imply here that everybody's ex experience has to be just like mine, so don't misunderstand me there. But there are elements that are always the same, and that's, that's why I chose those two stories, because one is... Just, just like when I was describing looking across the bar room floor and, and, and all of a sudden it all seemed so empty. One is that you, you just have a total radical reorientation. Uh, your, your outlook just radically changes. And, I'm, and I want to be honest with you. I didn't know why that was happening at the time. And I didn't know, I didn't know at the time it was a good thing. I, I honestly, there were times I honestly just thought I was going crazy. 
um, because of the way things played out. That would be a long story. But, but I do think that, like I say, it doesn't have to play out exactly the same way. It's different with different people experience different things. But you do have a radically new view of things, of course, including God. But it does. It's not only that. You've got a radically new view of the world, and your your um, you know what 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 you desire and what satisfies and what makes you happy and what you pursue. All of that changes. That's why that's why it's it's, it's radical. Radical. The term radical means to the root. In other words, you when you come to Christ, when a person is saved, you are changed. At, at, the, at the very most basic level, I mean where you really are, the, the heart of you, that's where the change takes place. And then it just is expressed outward from that. So there's that change. And then there's also, I think, common in every salvation experience, that surrender. Where God pins you down one fashion or another, like I say, your story won't be exactly like mine. It won't be exactly like Paul's, the Apostle Paul's. But somewhere there, God pins you down and you surrender. And you, you, you literally give up. You say, God, is, is, I see now it's got to go your way. It's not about me. And I cannot do things my way. And I, and I desire, because your desire changes, I desire, Lord, to do things your way. Now, I'm going to probably, you all know I'm not good at doing things fast, but I think this morning I'm going to have to do this kind of fast because there's a lot here. So for the sake of time, I'm going to try to keep moving. So if you have questions, we'll give opportunity for that later, like uh, maybe tonight. Um, but I'm going to try to move through this relatively quickly. So I want to point out some things here. because We're getting a, a contrast here, the Apostle John is giving us, um, between what, what I'm going to call here inadequate faith, and that's, that's primary, primarily uh, what John sets the stage with, these, with his comments in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2. Um, and then I think maybe goes on to give us a, a personal example. But, but he sets the stage there for this, con- for this contrast he's about to, to uh, highlight. So you've got inadequate faith. And on the other hand, you've got genuine faith that results in life. Of course, the, the inadequate faith is just deception. And so it doesn't accomplish a thing spiritually. But genuine faith in Christ, genuine trust in Christ... Um, that's the means of life, which we've already talked about that quite a bit. In fact, John, remember, he started out in the prologue by talking about Jesus as the Word, saying, in Him is life. And then we looked at our key verse over in John 20, um, verses 30 and 31. I've written these things, uh, you know, giving you these examples of signs so that you might believe, and believing you might have life. And you see that that is what is in focus here as well. You look down at verse 15 where Zach stopped that whosoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now that's the way the Bible describes salvation. That's the way the Bible describes Christianity. 
It is life. It's new life. So you go from being dead, spiritually speaking, to being made alive. You go from being totally self-centered in your pursuits, in your thinking, in, in, in who you are at the deepest level, and in all the expressions of it. You go from being totally self-centered to, to a Christocentric outlook. In other words, Christ is at the center. So now, instead of the world revolving around me, the world revolves around Christ. That's a radical change. And there's only one way that it comes about, and we're going to see that as we move through here. So first, let's deal with the inadequate faith. Because again, in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, John is setting the stage for this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Notice that. Note that. Many believed in his name. There's, there's nothing really overly significant about the phraseology here. Um, believed is, is um, a very commonly used term. I mean, sometimes translated belief or, or believe or sometimes faith. This, of course, is a verb form, so uh, you don't really have, a, in English, you don't really have a, a verb word uh, of faith, so we use believe, right? We could say faith, F-A-I-T-H-E-D, but that's not really, uh, you know, Probably not in the dictionary. Probably not a real word. So faith, but that's what it is. It's belief. They believe. And look what it says. I mean, it's even believed in His name. Now, there might be a slight nuance. I'll come back to that. But I don't think it's of major significance. The wording, what's going to make the difference is the context. In other words, in other words who's He talking about and, and how is their belief um, characterized? So, when Jesus was at Jerusalem at the Passover, this is the same Passover that he refers to back in 13. Remember, as, as Jesus is coming to, uh, comes to Jerusalem and he goes in and cleanses the temple, temple um, verse 13 says that Passover the Jews was at hand when Jesus went in and, clean, and cleansed the temple. Same Passover. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, fe- at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So now Jesus' public ministry is in full swing and signs, plural, are taking place. Just like John says in chapter 20, Jesus did many more signs than what I've written here. I'm just giving you these, and I'm paraphrasing, but John says I'm just giving you these so that you may believe and that believing on His name that you may have life. But up to now, John's only given us one example, and that is Jesus turning the water into wine. So, so we go from chapter 2 where Jesus does His first sign, turning water into wine, to where we are now here at the end of chapter 2, and He's done many. John just doesn't tell us what they were. He doesn't list them. But He does say, this is why some believe. So that sounds really good, doesn't it? Jesus is doing signs, and people are believing on His name because of the signs that He was doing. But, verse 24 says, Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them. Now, there's a, there's a word play here. Because John uses the same verb for believed, verse 23, meaning believed in His name. 
And he uses the same verb for Jesus in verse 24. On his part, he did not entrust himself. It's the same Greek verb translated in trust here. So you could, you could say it this way. Many trusted in His name, but Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. Well, that throws a little kink in it. I mean, as far as our modern way of thinking it does. I mean, we, we put a lot of emphasis, don't we, on just believe, just believe, just believe. And we tell everybody, come, come as you are and just believe and that's all you got to do. Jesus doesn't expect anything out of you. Just, just come and just believe. Are we wrong in saying that? Well, look at what John says here. Many believed on His name, but Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them. And we always get the impression that, well, certainly if you just, if you just make a profession, you just say that you believe... You just say that you've had this experience. Jesus will entrust Himself to you. You're His and He's yours. And so we get all of this kind of thinking going that we refer to a lot of times as easy believism. And it's popular today for people to say, Jesus is my homie. I mean, you see the t-shirts and hear the talk. And we almost forget, don't we, that passages like this exist. Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them. Why not? John tells us, because He knew all people. John, that's, that is a statement already, this early in the Gospel. That is a statement of Jesus' omniscience. He knows all things. He knows everybody. In other words, John is saying, because he knew, he knew who they really were. He knew their heart. You, they may fool each other. They may fool the religious leaders. They may fool their parents. They may even fool themselves. And the same could be said of us. We may fool everybody around us. We may even fool ourselves. But you will not fool Jesus because He knows everybody. He knows all people. In fact, John goes on and says in verse 25, "...and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man." That is a very revealing statement about the nature of Christ, the deity of Christ, Jesus and it's a profound statement about Jesus, His character, who He is. He knows all people. He knows man and He knows what is in man. He knew that their faith was inadequate. And one reason He knew that is because it didn't come from Him. He didn't generate it. If you're the only source 
of supply for a certain thing, and somebody claims to have it, and you didn't give it to them, and you know you're the only source, then you know they don't really have it. Right? We'll, we'll come back to that. <clears throat> First, notice this, because as I said, John is setting the stage here. So it's interesting. Verse 25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man. Literally in Greek, it's the man. I think, he's, I think John is just personalizing it because first he says he knew all people. That is, he knows everybody. And so it's kind of a way of saying, I think, down to the man, to the individual man. Jesus doesn't need anybody to explain to him your heart or my heart because he knows. He knows the heart of every individual. So, he doesn't need anybody to bear witness to him about the man for he himself knew what was in the man. Again, implying every single individual man, particularly these that are standing here, believing on his name. But notice this. Now, remember, in the original writing here, when the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, it wouldn't have the chapter divisions. Okay, so you don't have, you know, John didn't write, okay, here's chapter 1, here's the prologue, here's chapter 1, here's chapter 2, blah, blah, blah. I mean, those are ways that we, we identify certain parts of it, and, and it makes it easy access for us. But there would just be a flow without the chapter division originally. So look at the way he words this. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man named Nicodemus. See what John is doing? He's, he's telling us right at the beginning of the story. Before, before Nicodemus even came up and raised the first, made the first comment or raised the first question to Jesus, John's saying, Jesus knew who He was. He knew Nicodemus. He knew all about Him. It's, it's just like Nathaniel. Remember when Nathaniel came to Jesus and Jesus said, Now there's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He knew his heart. And Nathaniel was shocked because he knew who he was. Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree before uh, before you were called. And so he knows every man. So he knows man, now there was a man. So 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 John takes it from from the, the generalization, Jesus knows all people, down to the man, and he gives us an example. Here's a man that Jesus knew. And this is not unique. In other words, what I'm saying is it wasn't just because, well, we're going to see Nicodemus was a well-known teacher, but it wasn't just because of that that Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knows who you are as well, and Jesus knows who I am as well, and always has. So, here's the beginning of the dialogue, and this is where we get into talking about genuine faith. And we're going to start with the necessity, <clears throat> the necessity of the new birth. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Now, if, if you think back, verses 23 and, uh, through 25, it sounds like Nicodemus fits what John was talking about there. That many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And now, now there was a man, Nicodemus. And, and Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs. So the signs convinced Nicodemus, it would appear, to believe on the name of Jesus. Now, I said earlier that there might be a slight uh, a nuance here in the way that uh, this is worded uh, in, in verse 23. Many believed in His name. And I, and I certainly think this is the case, even if, uh, even if you can't back it up grammatically. In other words, there, there's, there's faith and there's faith. And I think in verse 223 there, where it says many believed in His name, the idea is that they essentially said, okay, this guy's doing marvelous signs. He must be the Christ. There's something unique about him. There's something special about him. By the way, Nicodemus hasn't even... uh, He's not even saying here that he's the Christ, but he does say, it's obvious you're from God. It's obvious God is with you. And so they're, they're believing in that sense, but see, there's... There's a difference in giving that kind of mental assent and the kind of surrender I was referring to earlier. That's one thing to just believe that somebody is something. It's another thing to put your total trust in them based on who they are, right? See, faith... We'll we'll see as we go because we're going to be talking about the spiritual nature of it. But faith in in and of itself is not spiritual. No, people have faith every day in different things. All of us do. It's evident right now. I see you sitting on the pews. Nobody looks worried about if the thing's going to collapse. You you got faith that those pews are going to hold you. In other words, you, you trust. You trust that they're going to hold you. Faith in and of itself is not spiritual. What makes faith spiritual is the object of it. See, now faith in Jesus, that's a different thing. Faith in Jesus is spiritual. And it's not something that you just muster up. We'll come back to that. So, he says, Rabbi, and it's interesting that first uh, pronoun there is in the plural. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now Jesus responds. This may seem strange again, like some of Jesus' responses do. Truly, truly. That's amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to say this right right up front, because we're going to be talking about being born again in the next few verses and when Jesus says you cannot see the kingdom of God, when he, when he makes reference to the kingdom of God, He's talking about salvation, what we, would, we simply call salvation. In other words, saving knowledge or saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, specifically, it's the idea of entering the kingdom at the last day. But we know, don't we, from reading the Bible, from reading the Gospels, that um, it, it's not that... Life and salvation and knowledge of Christ begins after the, the resurrection. 
There is a not yet aspect to it. Our, our salvation is not fully realized. But, don't, those of us who know Christ, don't we say all the time, saved in the past tense, right? I was saved, whatever. Well, we're not wrong for doing that because we do. We know Christ. We've already entered into knowledge of Him, relationship with Him, love for Him. We have life because we have Christ. So when he says, when he talks about seeing or, or entering the kingdom of God, he's talking about being saved. Delivered from sin, saved from the wrath of God, reconciled to God in Christ. And he says there's a prerequisite. You must be born again. Or, you can say it just this way, you're, you're, you're not getting in the kingdom. You're not getting in the kingdom and not even going to perceive of the kingdom without being born again. So, so here's what, what I was getting at. I said I'll say this right up front. <clears throat> to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I mean true, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, to be saved as we so often say it, to be delivered from God's wrath, which is coming, certainly, just, just like we've been talking about in our study in the book of Jude. To be reconciled to God, that is restored to right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. To do all of those things, there's many ways of saying the same thing, but to do all of those things, you and I must be born again. That's, that's not... That's not I mean, Jesus says it's a necessity. You must, He says. And yet, that's, that's not a real popular statement today. Even among churches. We, we've got all these easy ways in. Well, you know what? Just, just reform your life. You, what you need to do is, is give up some old habits. Get your act together. Be committed. I heard a... And, and I'm not against the word commitment. I use that all the time. But I heard this quote the other day. I thought it was very interesting. Joseph Son, T-S-O-N, very well-known pastor, preacher from Romania. He suffered persecution. I think he's still alive. He's an elder man, but I think he's still alive. I had the privilege of hearing him speak at Springs of Grace uh, years ago in Shreveport. But he's very well-known. He's very well-known in the United States and very... Highly respected. I mean, the man been through some stuff during the old USS days of the old USSR. But I read a, a little interview the other day where the interviewer asked him, "How would you characterize American Christianity?" And, and you know, and make a distinction between uh, what you would consider to be genuine Christianity. And he said, "Well." Um, I, Something to the effect, he said, I would use two words. American Christianity is commitment. Now, when I first read that, read that I thought, oh no, he's got it wrong. That's, a, that's the very thing we don't have is commitment. We need commitment. And, you, you know, and, and we're having to constantly remind ourselves and remind other people that the Christian life is commitment. But here's what he said. And he convinced me. He said, American Christianity is about commitment. When you commit to something, you're still in control. 
But he said biblical Christianity is about surrender. He convinced me. It's, it's about surrender. It's about surrender. I remember, I don't think I'll ever forget that, when, when the, uh, when the uh, Iraqis, the first Iraq war, surrendered and General Schwarzkopf was, of course, you know, he was not a one to play anyway. It's always the impression that I got. <clears throat> but he's on his way to his tent. They were having this big meeting in this tent, you know, for their surrender. And he's on his way in and, and they're over in Iraq and the reporters stopped him and a- asked him about the terms of the surrender. And he said, and he didn't get smart aleck or anything like that. He was very matter-of-fact, straightforward, but he said, there are no terms. This is an unconditional surrender. I mean, he was emphatic. This is an unconditional surrender. And the reporter didn't kind of take it back. Didn't know what to say. And he went in the tent. That's the case with Christianity. It's, it's an unconditional surrender. When, when you are born again, when you're saved, when you come to Christ, genuinely, it's the work of the Spirit of God in you and it produces unconditional surrender. You don't sit down and make terms with the Lord. Lord, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a little contract. And, uh, well, I think I'll keep this. And I, I'm going to continue to do that. And uh, so let's mark that one off. And, uh, oh, that one's off the table. Um, but, now, but here, well, now here's what we do. I'll go to church. And uh, go ahead and put that down. And, no, it don't work that way. It's unconditional surrender or it's not real. The fate in 23, 24, and 25 of chapter 2 is not real. I mean, it may be real in the sense that they believed something about Jesus, but it wasn't saving faith. And because it wasn't, He would not commit Himself to them. He knew. Listen, folks, this is why I say we don't fool Him. He knew that they didn't have what only He can give. Because He didn't give it. Well, let's see that in the next few verses. Jesus said, you must be born again. Truly, truly, verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is, you cannot even perceive of it. So unless you're born again, you're oblivious. I'm not... It's not that you're oblivious to religion. You might think, wait a minute, I, I understand, you know, because I, I know about going to church and I know about reading the Bible. I know about prayer. And I've had some great experiences in prayer. Uh, that's good, maybe. Well, it's probably not. But, but you, that doesn't mean you've had any understanding about the kingdom of God. Hindu monks pray. That's idolatry. So, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to them, said to him, verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Now, now Nicodemus is not stupid. In fact, he's one of the, 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 the primary teachers of Israel. So I think what he's doing here is, is, is a little bit rhetorical. But, he's, but in other words, he's not saying, well, I don't understand, you know, how do you go back in the womb? He's not doing that. What he's, what he's kind of, it seems like to me what he's kind of saying is, what you're saying isn't, isn't making sense, Jesus. You... How can a man in the soul go back into the womb and be born again? He may even mean it metaphorically. 
Because we all know, old people were setting our ways, right? So he may even mean it metaphorically. How can someone who's old start over and get a fresh outlook? How can an old dog change and do new tricks? And Jesus is going to tell him how. So he says, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And there is again the necessity of it. The wind blows, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we just talked about the necessity of the new birth now. I want to talk about the sovereign work of God in the new birth. Remember Nicodemus' question. First he says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? And then in verse 9, how can these things be? How do they happen? And literally it's, how are these things able to come to pass? I want to deal with that tonight. Where the ability behind them comes from. But for now, uh, Jesus speaks about God's sovereign work in salvation and the very nature of it, that is the fact that it is a spiritual... This new birth is a spiritual birth. So, real quick here. And I've and I got, I got to try to be quick, but I've got to point out a couple things here. First of all, in verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We need to uh, hold your place here and go to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Now, don't lose your place in John. We're going to flip back and forth in these next few minutes. Goodness gracious, running out of time quickly. <clears throat> Some of you are looking at the clock and saying you're out of time. But um, okay, well, let me just try to try to quickly do this, and we'll we'll, we'll dismiss. Um, and some of this we'll come back and discuss tonight, since we're since we're so short on time. First of all, notice in in John the nature of it. It's a work of God. Jesus says in describing the new birth, being born again. In verse eight, he says. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it, its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. What he's saying is, Nicodemus, you have no control over it. Nicodemus says, how are these things able to happen? Do I go back in my mother's womb? And like I say, he may, he may be saying that metaphorically. Do, do I start over? Do I go back and just try to wipe the slate clean up here and start over? And Jesus says, you don't have anything to do with it, Nicodemus. It's a work of God. It's a work of God's Spirit. He's like the wind. You see the effects, but you don't have any control. So it's, it's a sovereign work of God. Now, 
Here's a question that comes up a lot in verse 5. What in the world is Jesus talking about when He says you must be born of water and the Spirit? Alright, let me say right up front, I, I think water and Spirit is not referring to two different things. It's referring to one thing. Look back in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's, that's a parallel. In other words, born again, in verse 3, correlates with born of water and the Spirit in verse 5. They're, they're, they're talking about the same thing. One event. And Jesus expresses um, shock may not be the right word, but, but he, he insinuates here that Nicodemus should know this. He should know this. Um, verse 9. Or, I'm sorry, verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So what Jesus is talking about with a new birth is something that Nicodemus should have known. So when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit, he's talking about an event that Nicodemus should have already known about and been very familiar with and understood. So he must be talking about something in the Old Testament. Think about Jesus' question to Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know this? I think the answer is found uh, in Ezekiel 36. Verse 25. Here, God is prophesying, I I think in reference to the New Covenant, um, and and He's talking specifically about the restoration of Israel. Um, in In Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Now that's symbolic of cleansing. Cleansing. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Notice what he says. You'll be clean from all your uncleanness and all your idols. Remember what I was saying earlier about total surrender? The new birth brings about a cleansing from all idolatry. You'll be clean. From all your uncleanness and all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. So you see what God does through Ezekiel in this prophecy is bring together these two elements. Water... Spirit. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk. Notice that. Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, Lord willing, we'll come back and look at this tonight. You're going to see a great picture of that in Ezekiel 37. I don't have time to read it now or I would. But we'll, we'll, we'll plan to come back to that tonight. But he's saying, you, you're going to be new. 
through the water and spirit. Water symbolizes cleansing. Spirit, um, of course, is, is new life. In other words, breath of life is breathed into us and it brings about all these things we've been talking about. Total surrender. It brings about a new outlook. It brings about submission, obedience to the Lord. Cleansed from sin and brought into newness of life. Water, Spirit. Water, Spirit. So I think that's what Jesus has in view here that He says Nicodemus should have understood. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, John 3, 5, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I have to close, so I'm going to do it this way. Have you been born again? I'm not asking you if you made a profession. I'm not asking you if you were baptized. I'm not asking you if you go to church sporadically or every time the doors are open. I'm telling you and myself, based on the authority of God's Word, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Unless the wind of the Spirit of the living God has blown upon you and radically redirected your life. And I'm not just talking about habits. I'm talking about your innermost being. Unless you have been changed by the power of God so that you've got new vision, so that you've got new desires, so that you've got a new love, so that you find that nothing satisfies except Jesus. That's the new birth Jesus is talking about. You don't have to have ever have said a prayer in a ditch on the side of the highway. You don't have to do that. But you do have to be born again. In other words, the details are going to look a little different. Bottom line, essentially, in one, in one sense, we all have the same experience. God radically changes us. Have you been born again? That is the all-important question. I want you to think of it this way too. Brothers and sisters, I mean this is, this is something for us to all think about. Think of it this way as well in light of what we just read. Has Jesus entrusted Himself to you? It is essential that we have not a Jesus we made up in our own minds, but the Jesus of the Bible. The historical Jesus. The eternal Word that John began talking about. Has He made Himself known to you? Has He entrusted Himself to you? It's not simply 
profession. It's possession. It's easy to say. It's another thing to have. Would you stand, please? I'm going to ask you to do one thing as we close, and that is just consider these things. And I'm going to say it two ways. First of all, Have you ever trusted Jesus? Because there are some people who don't know Christ in truth who, who know that. I mean, in other words, they, they're lost. They know they're lost. They're, they're, they're putting on a facade and they know they're putting on a facade. Well, the thing is Jesus knows too because He knows all men and every man. And there's no fooling Him. Have you trusted Christ? Are you now trusting Christ for forgiveness of sins? Is He now everything to you, the only one who satisfies? Or are you still looking to other things, whether whatever, whatever kind of pleasure it, it, it may be, earthly things? Secondly, we also know from the Scripture that some people are themselves deceived. And so when you ask a question like, have you trusted in Christ, they are quick to say, well, yes, certainly I have. And, and, and it's not just that their whole life is a deception, but they, I mean, they've actually deceived themselves. So I, that's why I said I ask you to consider these things. Have you been born again? Do you see the radical change that John describes here as taking place in your own life? Do you know not just that you've made a commitment and a profession and all that, but do you know that Jesus, by His grace, has made Himself known to you and taken charge of your life? Do you know that He died for your sins when He died on Calvary? Do you know that you have life in Him because of His righteousness? If not, and I don't know any way to say it strong enough, but if not, all I know to, it, is to say, I plead with you. I plead with you today. Today! Surrender. Surrender to Him. Say, say to Him today. Cry out to Him for mercy today and say, Lord, it's got to be all about you, it's got to be your way, not mine. Surrender. Unconditional surrender. Would you think about those things as we pray? And we'll dismiss. Zach, you mind leading us in a word of prayer?